are in this series called Something New, as we look at the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, as we're in this season of Advent, celebrating Christ's arrival. Advent, again, is the uh, arrival of some notable person or event, because the arrival of Jesus, it changes everything, redefines everything, marks the beginning of a new age, marks a time when God is doing something new. He has intervened. And Advent, for us, as we reflect on that glorious arrival of Christ, it's a time to be reminded of these beautiful truths. So that's why we're in this season and what we're doing. And we're in Matthew. We're in the opening chapters of Matthew. And we're, we're kind of in this introduction of Matthew. And last week we looked at this genealogy. And this week we're going to continue on with a little more narrative. There's a little more action in what happens this week. You know, last week was a little rough. You know, you students, you, you missed uh, a delightful reading of a genealogy. So, uh, but we saw that there was great hope that was presented to us in those verses. And even today, as we read the section, we're going to be reminded that in this introduction, the introduction of a book kind of sets up the themes of a book. Matthew isn't relating mere historical facts. He's bringing in some great themes that are going to run throughout the rest of the book. So we're going to get to examine some of those today. Today we're going to look specifically at Joseph, then we're going to look at God, and then we'll have a response for us uh, after looking at those things. Well, let's dive in. We're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. So if you'll stand with me as we read from the Word of God. And stand if you are able. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. I pray that all of us would have soft hearts and open ears this morning. Speak to us, Lord, from what you have said. Give me clarity of speech. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes, just in the course of life, I discover a word that, uh, or I discover that a word I thought I knew does not mean what I thought it meant. It's a little embarrassing when you find that out. You know, you're using a word in conversation and people start looking at you a little funny. Or you start using a word that's uh, not word. Uh, that's happened to me before. Uh, I will not tell you what word that was, but uh, I have used a word before that uh, was told to me, hey, you know, that's actually, that's not, what are you, what are you saying? And I had to kind of 
Like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, it's embarrassing. But today we're going to see a word that is used to describe Joseph that when we think of this word, we generally are not thinking of it in the way that Matthew uses it. And that word is in our passage today. And uh, we're going to see what it is, but I want to uh, start off just by thanking uh, a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. His name is Jonathan Pennington. He has influenced my thoughts greatly, uh, not only on this passage, but in Matthew as a whole, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Dr. Pennington is a Matthew scholar and a former professor of mine. And uh, he, he has shaped a lot, even how I think about preaching. So if you don't like my preaching, you can go thank Dr. Pennington. Or if you love my preaching, you can thank Dr. Pennington because he has uh, influenced me in many ways. Uh, but uh, uh, he pointed out to me some things in this passage that for me were just kind of aha moments where I just realized, oh my goodness, Matthew is doing something very different than what I previously thought. So... We're going to dive in. Let's start looking at uh, chapter or verses 18 and 19 again. Matthew says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So, uh-oh, we have a problem. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So we have this problem. Mary is found to be with child. In that culture, very scandalous at the time, would not have been a good look for Mary or Joseph. Now Joseph, he knows what's going on, or he knows he's not involved, I should say. He's like, well, I'm not the father of this child. Can you imagine just the feelings that he would be experiencing at this point? The sense of loss and betrayal, of hurt. And it's interesting because in Matthew's Gospel, Joseph is the main character of the birth uh, story, of the nativity. In Luke, it's Mary. But, jo- but Matthew puts his focus on Joseph. But just think of all that Joseph is kind of walking through. This woman that he is betrothed to has seemingly betrayed him. Now, betrothal is a little bit more complicated than our engagement. You know, our engagement is not anything legal or binding in that sense. You know, we hear of engagement sadly ending. uh, I wouldn't say frequently, but it's not unheard of. But a betrothal was kind of a step beyond engagement. And if you were to break off a betrothal, it actually involved legal proceedings. You would actually call it divorce if a betrothal was broken off. So it even says here that Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. So this betrothal, it's a big deal. A legal issue is at hand. It's not just a, you know, hey, I've been really hurt and we're not going to have a wedding anymore. We're saying that, you know, there's, there are serious implications involved in what has happened here. So Joseph, he resolves to divorce her quietly. Now, why does he do that? He says he doesn't want to put her to shame resolves to divorce her quietly, but what's the why? Why does he do that? Well, the ESV says that he was a just man, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. That's why he did it. But that bring, Now, ESV is kind of vague in this. The, the Greek can kind of, kind of go two ways. Either he is 
resolving to divorce her quietly because he is a just man, or he is resolving to divorce her quietly in spite of him being a just man. So it's either causal, because, or concessive, in spite of. Now, if we only had this part of Matthew, it'd kind of be a toss-up. Well, we don't know what Matthew means. So ESV even kind of translates it in a very neutral way. It says, he was being a just man, resolved divorce her quietly. Well, how are those two things actually related? They are related. And you know what? This isn't the only part of Matthew we have. We have all of Matthew to see. Okay, how does Matthew use this word just? Now, this word just is actually the word righteous. Righteous. You see, the title of our sermon is Merciful Righteousness. When it says that Joseph was a just man, Matthew is saying Joseph was a righteous man. That word is most often translated as righteous, especially in Matthew. He was a righteous man. That root occurs 26 times in the book of Matthew. So almost once a chapter, it's showing up. And it's most commonly used to describe the people of God. Who are the people of God? They are the just. They're the righteous. And Matthew is telling us something about what the righteous are like. Joseph is not doing this in spite of him being righteous. Joseph is resolving to not put Mary to shame because he is righteous. Because let's look at what the rest of of Matthew says. Why does Joseph show mercy? Why uh, does Matthew say it this way? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, shortly thereafter, Jesus is teaching and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he says that in verse 20 of chapter 5, and then he proceeds to give six examples of what that righteousness looks like. And all of that righteousness talks about kind of a love for other people. And not just a surface level love that kind of does nice things out here, but a wholehearted, full person love for other people. And you know what the sixth one is? The kind of final example of what it looks like to love your neighbor? It's this, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He says, love others because God loves. God is merciful. So we see that in the Sermon on the Mount. That's an example of righteousness. Let's fast forward all the way to the end of the book. So we're going to skip many examples, but go to the end. In chapter 25 is the last section of teaching that Jesus has before he goes to the cross. And we arrive at this last parable where you have uh, God separating the sheep and the goats, the just from the unjust, the righteous from the unrighteous, the believer from the non-believer. God separates them. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. So these people, the sheep, the ones on his right, what do they do? They're showing mercy. They're showing love to the people around them. And Matthew puts this at the very end of his gospel to kind of as a summation of all that Jesus has taught. 
Because a lot of the themes of the book are kind of wrapped up right here in this parable. And so when we turn to Joseph, when we ask, what does it mean for Joseph to be a righteous man? I think it is very fair and good and right to say that Joseph, because he is righteous, decides to show mercy, doesn't lash out at Mary, shows mercy. So let's talk about what mercy actually is. Well, one of my Bible dictionaries on my shelf, an old one, Vine's Dictionary, says it is an outward manifestation of pity. An outward manifestation of pity. And pity, the, the sense of that is compassion. This deep welling up of the Spirit that shows compassion to people. Well, I've come up with my own definition of it. A little more complicated. It's this. Mercy is the deliberate decision driven by one's affection to render aid to one in distress or not deliver another person or people over to the just consequences of their actions. So more wordy than vines, but I felt kind of captures a lot of how Matthew deals with this idea of mercy. But it's a deliberate decision. So it's not just something that's like, oh, you know, maybe over here. But it's like, no, I am deciding to show mercy. But it's not just an intellectual decision. It's something that is deeply rooted within your soul. It comes up out of who you are. It's an affection-oriented or an affection-caused response. It's driven by one's affection. And you're rendering aid or you're not giving kind of just desserts, if you will. Now, mercy requires, or we need to make a note about mercy. It requires there to be a problem in the first place. You can't show mercy when there's no problem. But also, whenever mercy is shown, mercy always costs the mercy giver. See, I think mercy is often hard for us because we don't want it to cost us anything. And we, looked at the, we look at the cost of what it will take to show mercy, and we're kind of like, ah, no thank you. That's going to cost me. Mercy always costs. Now, I want to bring this home to us and talk about our tendency as Christians and our, the tendency we have when we think about righteousness. You know, we tend to have this view of righteousness as being comprised of a list of rules or being faithful to the law which it certainly is that. And Paul often uses uh, the, the idea of righteousness in that way in his letters. But Paul's not writing Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is. So we have to ask, how does Matthew use this? And it doesn't negate what Paul says, but instead it gives us an even fuller and greater picture of what righteousness is in God's eyes. And we have this tendency to look at righteousness as a list of rules or a list of obligations or a, a way I ought to be. And it's not, not those things. But we tend to leave out the idea of mercy and love of neighbor. I want it to be a quality of being right without it, to, without it being a quality of loving neighbor. In our hearts, we can be fine with being unconcerned about the people around us. But woe is us if we don't have a mercy for others. Mercy runs after the good of others. Do we run after it, or do we just say, oh, these are the good things that we need in our life? Do we look at good and say, yeah, this is how I need to morally order myself, or do we also see good as moving towards other people and wanting good for them? It must be both of those together. 
I want to share a little bit about my father-in-law before I show you the main point for this, uh, our first main point. Uh, I, I can't talk enough about just the godliness of my father-in-law. And you guys have heard about him before, but uh, my, my father-in-law was a home builder. That was his job. He owned a, a home construction business. And humble beginnings, a, a few, I don't know, weeks or months before he passed away, there was a house that they were building, and uh, one of the Finnish carpenters who was doing all the trim in the house did all the trim the wrong color. Uh, that was a big deal. And it was very clearly the, uh, the, the carpenter's fault. Um, uh, my father-in-law had receipts. But my father-in-law loved this guy. Loved him. He was his friend. Cared deeply for him. Was his Christian brother. And he knew that this mistake, it was going to cost $30,000 to fix. And he knew that that amount of money was going to ruin his friend. My father-in-law was not a wealthy man, but he looked at this and said, our company can eat this. We just won't take very much profit on this construction. He showed mercy to his friend. He didn't have to. He would have been fully within his rights to say, you know, you made this mistake. I'm sorry, but you have to fix it. He would have been fully within his rights, and you couldn't blame him for it either. But in that moment, my father-in-law showed himself to be a righteous man. Because he said, I'll take care of it. I don't think he even let that guy knew that there was a problem. He cared that much. That much. He was a righteous man, showing the same type of life that Joseph had. You see, Matthew, in, this, in, in these early chapters, he's giving us kind of these pictures and telling us this is what it ought to be. I don't, I don't want to just hold Ma uh, Joseph up as an example and say, be like Joseph. But Matthew is very intentionally showing us what it looks like to be the people of God. So yes, be like Joseph. Be like him. So, here's our first main point. One of the primary attributes of righteousness is mercy. One of the primary attributes of righteousness is mercy. Okay, we spent a lot of time on that first point, so we'll go quicker through these next, uh, this next one. But that brings us to the question of why is this the case? Why is this the case? Why can we say that righteousness or mercy is an attribute of righteousness? Why is it that way? But also, how do we become merciful? If this is how we ought to be, because we ought to be righteous, how do we move in that direction? How do we become merciful people? Some people obviously have more mercy than others. My wife has a ton of mercy. I have just a little bit of mercy. It's an area where I'm always asking, Lord, help me to be more merciful. You know, do we just kind of grit our teeth and say, all right, I'm, I'm just going to be merciful? That doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> Sounds a little off. Is it something we just do on a checklist? I need to have one merciful act today. If I can just get this done, that's how I become a merciful man. How do we become merciful? That leads us to our second point. Righteousness is merciful because God is merciful. This is the why. Righteousness is merciful because God is merciful. But it's also going to show us the how going to answer both the why and the how, because he has extended that mercy to us. He's not merciful in a vacuum, but he shows himself to be merciful. So see how Matthew shows us that 
in the text. Verse 20 to 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We have this promised son from God himself, not tainted by sin, but he is the son who is going to bring salvation. You see, God's mercy is shown to us in that Jesus came to save. He didn't just send Jesus to be with us. He didn't just send Jesus to be here and be this guy to show us what to do, but he sent Jesus to save. Jesus' name is Joshua. That's, that's what it is. He had a very common name. But Joshua, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, what does it mean? Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. So we have Jesus. That's, that's a, an important name. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this idea that he's going to save his people from their sins is not from a legal standpoint. Of you stand guilty and condemned. That's not how Matthew is using it. Paul often uses it that way, and that's right and good. But Matthew is using it in the sense of a rescue. He will save you from sin. Your sins have you oppressed, and God needs to rescue you out of them. God creates his people through a rescue. Think back to the Exodus. He creates them through a rescue, a rescue through the Red Sea, from Egypt, from slavery. And he creates this new people of God. And he does the same thing, but better and bigger in the new covenant. Creates a people for himself. He rescues them out of sin. Creates his people through a rescue leads us to the question, do we see ourselves as people that need rescuing? Because I think oftentimes we don't want to admit that we do need rescuing. Oh God, I got this. I can do today. And God says, no. Will you say that you need rescuing? We both need rescuing from the penalty of sin because we do stand condemned. We also need rescuing from the presence of sin. Sin's power has been broken. Jesus rescued us from its power. But its presence is still there, and so we still struggle through sin. And do we cry out to God and say, God, rescue me? And maybe you're here today, and you've never thrown yourself at the feet of God and said, God, rescue me. And if you haven't, I invite you to do that. Because if you do, God says, yes, I will rescue you. God wants us to lay down our arms and to stop fighting against him and to trust in Jesus Christ and in his sacrifice. He shows us mercy in that. Mercy. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save his people from their sins. Guys, this cannot get old. We hear this and we're like, yes, I know. But man, what a beautiful picture of mercy. You see, Joseph extended mercy to Mary but an even bigger, bigger mercy was shown to us. You see, Mary didn't do anything wrong. But we have done something far, far more terrible than ever, you know, cheating on a betrothed. Oh my goodness, we have rejected God in his kingship, but God in his mercy still saves. But let's see, not only does he save us from his sins, but he continues on to, 
to tell us more, or the angel speaks, or Matthew is commentating. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we see God here showing mercy to us by being with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Here we have a quotation from Isaiah 7, 14. And I want to go on a little bit of a tangent and talk about how Matthew uses Old Testament prophets. Because oftentimes, when you look back on Matthew's use of the prophets, we're going to see it actually a lot more next week. He uses like half a dozen kind of quotes from the Old Testament in chapters 1 and 2. And he usually says, and this was used to fulfill whatever this guy over here said. And you look back on the original context, some of these verses, and it's kind of like, all right, Matthew, what are you doing here, bro? Uh, Because this thing that was said back there wasn't even a prediction. We see this in a quotation from Hosea that he's going to use. The quotation that Hosea uses, Hosea's looking back. He's looking back on how God created a people for himself out of Egypt. And so you look at Matthew and you're like, uh, are you just cherry-picking verses from the Old Testament and you're kind of using them as proof text to be like, oh, see, this is, this is what's going on. And a lot of secular scholars, they'll read Matthew and some of the other New Testament writers and they say that's what they're doing. They're just trying to fit it into what they want. But I think Matthew is doing something far more beautiful and clever when he says, this fulfills this. So I want to talk about that just real briefly, because you will encounter that in the world out there. They'll be like, hey, the New Testament writers, they're just crazy, and they're not, they're not actually doing this. Or you may read it for yourself, and you'll be like, but the prophet's not predicting anything. Now, let's talk about Isaiah 14, or 7.14. Well, excuse me, Matthew generally, when he's talking about fulfillment, there's kind of three buckets you can put these quotations in, three buckets. There's one, a clear messianic prediction. When you look back in the original text in the Old Testament, it's a clear prediction. There are some of those. One of them uh, is in Micah, where it talks about the Messiah coming out of Bethlehem. That is clearly predictive. It's clearly talking about the Messiah. There's not much question about what's going on there. That's kind of your first bucket. It's the most obvious. The second one is a little more nebulous. You have a double prediction, where you have an original statement by the prophet saying something will happen. But then you also have a recording of that promise or prediction being fulfilled in the Old Testament. But maybe there's hints at something greater. And you have a kind of a double fulfillment happening in Christ. Where something was originally fulfilled in its original context, but then it's fulfilled again in Christ. So you have this double prediction kind of going on. Then you have a third one, and this is the most clever, and this is one of Matthew's actually favorites. Instead of a prediction, it's more of a filling up. One commentator describes it as saying, it is like this. What happened here is like this. Or it rhymes. It is analogous. Or this thing in the prophet reaches its fullest meaning in Christ. It's saying God is the God of all history, and all of these earlier things... They're earlier melodies. 
that reach their full embodiment in Jesus. Okay? So it's kind of saying these are like the things that happened before. And Jesus is fulfilling them in showing what they were actually pointing to. So the prophet wasn't necessarily making a prediction, but God was telling his people, this is what I'm like, and we fully see that in Jesus. Okay, make sense? So you got those three buckets. you got a clear messianic prediction, you have a double prediction, and then you have a, it's like this, or it's a kind of a filling up. That's the third bag, and it's the most fun to kind of examine and see. So what's going on with Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew's use here? I think it's probably both the, the, the two latter ones. You have, you have this double prediction and you have a filling up where Matthew is saying it is like this. In, Matthew, in Isaiah 7.14, there's certainly a predictive element where there was a child to be born as a promise of God's saving hand. Because in chapter 7, Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz, the king of Judah, and Judah was under attack from Syria and Israel, and God gave a promise of rescue. And he said, as a sign of this promise of rescue, there'll be a child born as a sign. And before that boy grows up and knows how to choose the evil or the good, I'm going to rescue you. Those people who are oppressing you, Syria and Israel, they'll be destroyed. Now that happens. That child is born in chapter 8. And that child is named Maher Shalal Hashbaz which means the spoil seeds, the prey hastens. I still don't even know what that means. So there you go. But anyways, in chapter 8, they declare Emmanuel, God with us. So we have chapter 7, a prediction, and a fulfillment in chapter 8. But here again, Matthew takes that and says, oh, but that wasn't the only prediction that Isaiah was making, saying there was something greater that was to come too. And we see that in Isaiah chapter 9. Because all of a sudden, Isaiah shifts his attention away from this child that was born to Isaiah and his wife, that's actually the child that was born, to another child. He says, there will be another child who comes. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. And how else does it go? He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, or Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are names that cannot be given to a mere man. Those are the names that belong to Jesus Christ. So Matthew picks up on this and says, yeah, it's a double. But it's also a filling up. Because just as Israel was saved, or excuse me, Judah was saved from Israel and Syria, oh, there's going to be a greater saving through Jesus Christ. Just like it happened then, it's going to be better now. That's what he's saying, and it's beautiful. So Matthew is, is taking these Old Testament themes and saying, yes, it is here in Christ, and it is good, and there is tremendous hope. Tremendous hope. And that is where we see God's mercy. We see God's rescue. Now, that leads to another question of, but why can God just not snap his fingers and make it all good? I mean, after all, in Isaiah 8, when he talks about rescuing the people, yeah, he kind of destroys the northern kingdom, Israel, and he destroys Syria. So God can just do that? Come on, what's going on? Why can't he snap his fingers? That's why God with us is incredibly important. Because the incarnation is important. God, the incarnation, when, when God put on flesh and dwelt among us in mercy, he needed to put on flesh. There was a church father, his name was Gregory of Nazianzus. What a great, great name. Gregory of Nazianzus. It's like, I'm Mark Johnson of 
Charlotte. No, that's, you know, Gregory of Nazianzus. He lived at a time where people were kind of, they got Christ's deity, but they struggled with his humanity. And Gregory of Nazianzus said this, what is not assumed is not redeemed. He said if Jesus is actually redeeming us, he has to be like us. If he's going to be the ultimate man and we're going to have his life, his life given to us and for us, it has to be a human life. God can't come down in the form of a dog and die for our sins because the penalty of death was not the death of a dog, but the death of a man. God, if he was going to pay for us, had to be a man. What is not assumed is not redeemed. So the incarnation, God with us, is incredibly important. God reached out to a wretched people, an unmerciful people, you and I. And he decided to save them. See, mercy seeks the good of others. It runs to those in need. It doesn't take vengeance. It doesn't ask for payment. It looks and sees who needs rescue and says, I will be there. I will be there for you. It's not a reluctant mercy. When I was in high school, my football team, my sophomore year, I say my football team. I didn't play football. But the football team of my high school went defeated. Not undefeated, defeated. We did not win a single game. We went defeated. I went to one game. It was against West Charlotte High School. And in that game, I was so excited because like, never went to a game before. And so like, I missed the football game. At halftime, we were losing 63 to nothing. And they invoked a mercy rule where they had a running clock in the second half. And, and we tend to think of mercy as that right? Like, oh, we're just invoking a rule and God has to feel sorry for us because he has a set of mercy rules that he abides by. That's not what God's mercy is like. It comes from his being. God's not like a mercy rule. God is mercy in his inner core. Merciful in his inner core. Imagine when you've wronged someone and you've confessed it to them and they just come and they sit with you and they put their arm around you. That is the mercy of God. Emmanuel, God with us. He doesn't just snap his fingers and say, okay, I'll make it go away. But he says, no, I'm going to come down and put my arm around you. And our Savior has a physical body and there will be a day in heaven where you can sit down and Jesus will put his arm around you. Because he still has arms. Jesus is not some nebulous sky being. Jesus Christ still has his human body and always will. He is like us. He shows us his mercy. You may feel like you don't deserve God's mercy or you're ashamed of what you've done. And you don't deserve God's mercy, but that's the whole point. You can't deserve it. He gives it. Or maybe you feel like you don't need God's mercy. And you do. And that's the whole point. You can't earn it and you need it. Both of those things. J. Oswald Sanders once said, what will amaze us as we look backwards from eternity is not the severity of God's justice, but the greatness of his mercy. The greatness of his mercy. So why does righteousness mean that we're merciful? Righteousness is merciful because God is merciful. And righteousness is having character like God himself. Like God himself. So let's talk about us just real quick in closing. See, God's mercy towards us should lead us to have mercy for others. I, I talked about this a few weeks ago, so I don't want to expand on it too much. But I do want to say today, in light of what we've read, Emmanuel, God with us, to dwell on the fact that God came and dwelled with us. Just meditate on it. Soak on it. Let your fingers get wrinkly with it. 
God with us. But then also in your own life, look for opportunities to extend mercy. Be patient with the quirks of others. Students, be patient with your roommates when they're driving you nuts. Just be patient when they haven't done the dishes again, or maybe when people are cold to you and just don't seem to get you, or they ignore you, they leave you out of things. Move towards them anyways. Be merciful. For those of you with spouses, don't respond with a cutting remark when someone's bothering, when your spouse is bothering you. But instead, how do I respond with mercy? How do I move towards them? Not lashing out, demanding justice. I know that's hard. Some of you have been deeply wounded by your spouse or even a spouse that has left you. But what does it look like to be someone that extends mercy? I'm not saying be a doormat. Please don't hear me. Being, extending mercy and being merciful is not the same thing as being a doormat. But it does say having a spirit that says, I want good for you and I want you to be restored and redeemed. Maybe you're an employee and you have a tyrannical boss or you're a boss and you have a terrible employee. What does it look like to extend mercy towards that person? You parents with kids, what does it look like to be merciful towards your children, whether they're young or adults? Maybe you have an adult child who seems to neglect you and doesn't seem to care for you well. How do you continue to show them mercy anyways? For you teens out there, I know you feel like your parents don't know anything. They don't get it. Show them mercy. Maybe they don't get it, but show them mercy anyways. You don't get a pass just because you're a teenager. You're called to a righteousness that has mercy as well. For all of us, when we're wronged, when we're slandered, cheated, humiliated, let's respond with mercy because we've been shown mercy. Here's our summary statement for today. Let my righteousness be merciful, for in his righteousness, God is merciful to me. In his righteousness, God is merciful to me. We have the profound ability to think we are righteous, yet we don't want to be merciful. So let's dwell on God's mercy and then extend that mercy to others. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are kind to us, that you are merciful to us. May we be reminded of that mercy day in and day out. Jesus, we praise you that you are God with us, that you put on flesh, that you put your arm around us, that you love us. Help us to remember that. Father, may we not have a righteousness skin deep or just looks to do moral things. But may we have a righteousness that is merciful and longs for the good of others. Help us to love others and love you, just as you have loved us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Now we're going to move into a time of communion, so